emergency physicians are as guilty as anybody of saying, eh, he's back again, eh, it's not a problem. I remember we were supposed to learn about bowler's anger. I never, I never, I never did that thing, you know. Especially, can you imagine subtle fractures? You know, it's off about four degrees. Hello and welcome, Rick Bucata, Risk Management Monthly, coming to you for the month of February 2022. And as usual, Rachel Linders with us and Greg Henry. And we're going to be doing a series of cases today from Rachel. And uh, Greg's going to give his commentary, his pithy remarks. And welcome to you both. Uh, Any comments before we get started? There's. It's not a great day for comments, Rick. The Russians are invading, but other than that, we're okay. Rachel, you've got some cases for us um, uh, that relate to orthopedics. You want to go through some of those? Yeah, so these are all cases that I had pulled out for an ASAP talk, and the reason I'd focused on these is because orthopedic injuries are one of the Uh, three most common kind of categories of cases that emergency physicians are sued for. We don't really think of those because they generally aren't a matter of life and death, but they're so common. And I think because they're so variable, there's so many different bones that we can injure uh, as a group, maybe we're not as good at managing them as we maybe think we are. And so I think these cases highlight some of the areas that we could probably do better. So this first case uh, is called uh, Clinkenbeard was a California case. In this one, there was an 18-year-old kid who came in after a motocross injury. Uh, Basically, I think he'd landed from a jump and kind of had a forceful impact on his wrist and the handlebars. And so came in with his just wrist hurting from that handlebar injury. He had x-rays. They were negative. The doctor told him, you know, bones look good, probably just a sprain, Um, should, should be feeling better in no time. And so he went home. And you, know, you guys could probably predict the rest of this. He went yes. home. It really didn't get better. Felt worse and worse. Eventually, he was found to have a, a poorly healed scaphoid fracture and ended up having chronic persistent pain and eventually sued because, you know, he was 18 and never really regained appropriate painless use of his hand. We don't know exactly how much the verdict was for, but I think, you know, highlights one of the areas that we're kind of at risk for all the time with this particular type of injury, which is reliance on x-rays. Yeah. Yeah. You would think like a a handlebar injury is kind of like a fall on the outstretched hand equivalency in terms of what it's doing. Um, it, It is easy to fall into this trap for sure. Let me tell, tell you what I've seen is, uh, because we have an x-ray or somebody is ordered an x-ray, there's no real examination or careful examination of the limb. If they have a pain in the in the scapho-navicular area, no matter what the x-ray says, if they're not better in a day or so or there's still pain going on, they need to be seen re-back. Re and the uh, the truth is, the x-ray um, on a second visit may not be the study of choice, Rachel. I would think there are better things we can do if we're still suspicious of a fracture. Right. 
So we know on the first visit, the sensitivity for x-ray is somewhere between 60 to 80%. And, you know, I think what this person could have done better is, first of all, document a better exam. You know, look to see, did he have tenderness over the scaphoid, the anatomic snuff box? It wasn't documented at all. And could have been very explicit about the fact that the x-ray was not sensitive in this case, that a fracture had not been ruled out and that he would need follow-up for persistent pain. And then I think standard of care would be to splint him and he was not splinted. And so, you know, none of that was done. None of that was documented. And this is a pretty predictable outcome. Yet I still see it fairly, fairly commonly. And I think uh, to echo your point, Greg, I think we are losing the physical exam because of over-reliance on imaging. And, you know, I'm certainly guilty of that in some cases. But like, if you don't know where the snuff box is, you know, that's on you. Yes, yes, that is on you. And it seems to me that uh, examination is not only one of those things that lets the patient know that they've been seen by a doctor, but it's pretty straightforward and simple when you're looking at the wrist. We're not uh, we're not looking at a lot of anatomy here. And there are things that we we look for every time. And the scaphonavicular excuse me, tenderness, is just one of those things. You know, the old uh, practice had been to immobilize people, uh, and, and sometimes the immobilization was more than just a splint. It would be like, if you really want to immobilize the scaphoid, you have to do a, a uh, you have to immobilize the elbow as well. And so, so yes. there's no, uh, you know, rotation of the wrist. In any case, that is a problem because, you know, I remember we used to do that and it was like, well, who's going to be able to wipe their butt uh, uh, adequately if they're splinted like that? And how are you going to suture if you're an emergency physician or how are you going to intubate if you're an emergency physician and you're, um, you've got a cast on? So you can't work uh, and other people may not be able to work as well. So the idea here is... Uh, I think having a low threshold for an M- MRI is um, is where we really ought to go. That machine is right down the hall for crying out loud. We can make the diagnosis uh, in the cases where we're suspicious, where the initial x-ray is negative. And, you know, I, I hear people saying, oh, no, no, no. Why not? I mean, that's that's the definitive test as, as far as we know. So... Um, I'm not really one of the people who likes the immobilization and then come back later point of view, but yeah, I think I, I'm, I'm in the minority. Yeah, I think you are on that one, Rick. But the but the other side of this case is uh, if in a day they still have a pain, you can do the other test. Um, and it is worthwhile to talk to the patient about the fact that not all fractures and not all problems are picked up on the first study. Uh, and uh, I think I think Rachel used the term like 20% of these are missed. I think that's probably right. And um, if you're somebody who works for a living, uh, a carpenter or this, that, or another thing, this can be a bad injury and it can go on to, to other problems. Yeah. And another thing to point out is we talk about scaphoid fractures a lot because they're so, so common, but the sensitivity of x-ray for other 
carpal, metacarpal fractures are, are similarly low. And so, you know, don't get fooled into thinking that if you're looking for some other fracture, that x-ray is good just because you haven't kind of heard the same discussion for that particular bone that you're hearing for scaphoid, that the sensitive x-rays for any of those hand bone fractures are similarly low. So if you're suspicious, you don't see an initial x-ray, really low threshold to, you know, get advanced imaging or refer for the same, you know, depending on what your health system allows. Yep. Okay. All right, sticking with this theme, next case, uh, Baker versus Jacksonville Emergency Consultants. This is a case from Florida. And this one, a 50-year-old male came in with foot pain after a fall. I don't remember the net mechanism, but let's just say he was up on a ladder and uh, dropped off the ladder, came in with pain over the heel, had x-rays done. Uh, x-rays were read as negative, discharged home. Eventually, a staff radiologist looked at the x-rays and said, oh, actually, there is a calcaneal fracture on those x-rays. <laughs> Patient was at home and nobody called him to tell him that. He developed persistent pain, you know, eventually went on to seek more care and was eventually found out that he had this x-ray. And so he sued and he actually uh, lost his lawsuit, but could have easily gone the other way, as we know. And I think this highlights, you know, again, the limitation of x-rays. In this case, x-rays for acute calcaneal fractures are only 70% sensitive. So we're going to miss that about a third of the time. Yep. Yeah, I think I, that uh, I, I've seen enough of these that the worst thing an emergency doc can say is it's not broken. What you can say is at this moment in time, this is what we see. If your pain continues, we may have to do another test. And I think that's fair. Uh, you know, if the next day the patient's fine walking around doing nothing, okay. But I, I bet that wasn't the case. If they had a, a calcaneal fracture, it was bothering them the next day, and they ought to be seen again. And uh, we shouldn't we shouldn't be slow to see these people back. You know, emergency uh, physicians are as guilty as anybody of saying, "Ah, eh, he's back again." Eh, it's not a problem. You know what? If necessary, get a different study <laughs> because that patient uh, can can have uh, long-term consequences of that. You know, you know, I'm a little reluctant to uh, do this well, seeing back in you know a day or kind of thing because I think that um, when that occurs, it it really basically you won't expect the substantial difference in some kind of musculoskeletal thing in a day or two or three. I mean, it's going to be something out longer than that. And, um, and maybe if the pains have gone away or has essentially gone away on a follow-up visit, that that's great. But in the meantime, I think the idea that, uh, you could have more definitively made the, uh, made the call, uh, suggest that maybe we should be more aggressive about no especially when we know that these tests are not all that sensitive but sure i'll get the test first absolutely because if you it's it's also 70 percent accurate so you're going to miss 30 percent. so you know that knowing that if you have a high index of suspicion you might as well just get the uh mr right then and there uh and not and not you know, say, okay, well, we're going to ha have somebody order this in a week if you're not 
you know, you're not better. The other thing in these cases is to make sure that you ask about their their back and that they don't have any pain in their back because usually the force that's going to break your calcaneus has the opportunity, particularly if you're osteoporotic, to have some lumbar fractures as well, especially when you land on both feet and you've got that this thing going on. I remember we were supposed to learn about bowler's angle. I never, <laughs> I never, I never could do that thing, you know, especially, can you imagine subtle fractures? Yeah. It's off about four degrees, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think the other issue that this case highlights is the, and, and we've talked about it before is what do you do with overreads? You know, the importance of having a system of who handles that, because it's just, you know, the person who takes that call later doesn't have the same ownership of the patient as the person who saw them. And so making sure that, you know, either that radiologist making the call, probably not, or the physician who's on at the time or a nurse, but that somebody is closing that loop and that didn't happen at this time. And that, that puts everybody at risk. Yeah. We always had the doc who was on when those readings came back they were responsible for closing that loop. They had to make the phone call and, and note on the chart that they talked to the patient and that they were coming back or whatever was going to go on. I think, I think that's important. And when we found something like that out, the patient has a right to be a little bit upset if, if that reading is not, you know, ha hasn't been available to them when they needed it. Why should they pay for a study which isn't available, the reading, the finding isn't there, when, when their body needs it? And I, I think that that's, uh, that is a genuine problem and has been for a long time. I, I think the readings need to be pretty, uh, pretty soon after somebody's visited. You know, legally, I think that those systems, I think they're really common that it's the obligation of the physician who's on at the time to make that call. But legally, I think there are potentially some loopholes there. Like, you know, let's say that physician doesn't make that call. You know, it happens 12 hours later, a physician gets busy, they forget, and it just doesn't happen. And then the patient wants to sue. You know, can they sue that physician who just forgot? They have no relationship with that physician. That physician never saw them. They never talked to them. I think that's that's tough. I think they can sue the hospital they could sue the department and say, your system sucks. But that physician, I think, could kind of wiggle out of that and be like, not my patient. Never saw him, you know, never touched him. And so I think it would fall back on the physician who initially saw them and the hospital. And so we just have to be really careful that we're kind of taking care of each other. We work <laughs> in a system that we trust, et cetera. Yeah, I think that that's all true. We just see these cases over and over and over again of people not getting called back on their injuries uh, because there's some, some somebody slips up. And I certainly remember when I had to do that stuff that it was like I would often kind of, oh, geez, I, you know, I, I, I almost forgot I had to do that. It's like there wasn't a kind of surefire practice to make sure it happened because once I was told there was an x-ray, I had to call back. It's like you get distracted and somebody else comes in and the next thing you know, it's like not very much in the frontal part of your <laughs> cortex. Right. 
And the other thing is that it's a pain in the butt because you, then you have to kind of get out the record. You have to make a notation in somebody in the record someplace that, uh, that you've talked to them and uh, what you said to them, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, ah, eh, geez. A lot of hospitals have nurses. Nurses do this. Um, do you have a, what's your system at Mayo? Um we have kind of a combination of uh, nurses and physicians that that look after it. So it it depends. Sometimes the radiologists communicate directly with the physicians who then just take care of it. And we have a kind of a team of nurses that will manage it too. Got you. Yeah. Case number three. All right. So again, same theme. And this one, this is like one of my... Uh, a mountain that I'll die on, uh, for better or for worse. But this case is case from Oregon, 2012, 85-year-old male came in after a ground-level fall. He was having upper back pain, flank pain. Uh, he was evaluated with x-rays, including a chest x-ray. Everything looked good, so he was sent home. Two weeks later, he came back in respiratory distress, uh, basically had been having worsening respiratory difficulty since discharge, ended up dying of a massive hemothorax in the ED, was found to have undiagnosed rib fractures that had lacerated a pleural artery, and he'd just been slowly bleeding out since his Oof. fall. So the lawsuit actually was decided in favor of the defense in this case, but again, you know, flip of the coin there. And this to me is, like I said, a hill that, uh, a mountain that I kind of routinely find myself dying on because it was always imprinted on me in training that the sensitivity for rib fractures, sensitivity of, of x-ray for rib fractures in the elderly is less than 50%. 40% is the number that I found when looking this up. So, you know, and, and people that are having that you're concerned about fractures because of trauma and you get an x-ray it's just a terrible terrible test and i think it shouldn't be done we should be getting ct scans in these patients and it's an easy test it's a non-contrast ct that's what they need and we should stop getting chest x-rays in elderly patients when evaluating them for rib fractures because the mortality for these patients that have especially consecutive rib fractures um I think the number, if you have three plus rib fractures in, and you're over the age of 65, the mortality is upwards of 50% in some studies. Yeah. So we really need to be taking these patients seriously. And I don't think a chest x-ray signifies that we're doing that. I It's hard for me to believe that over that period of time, the patient didn't have some other symptoms though. Well, I'm not saying Rachel. it sounds like yeah. he had worsening respiratory distress, but he's 85. He was told everything was fine. You know, yes. this is like a classic patient. The doctor said, I'm fine. I'm not going to come back. You know, he waited till he was near death. <laughs> well, and I thank him for waiting. But but I think the uh, I think this is something where it's always something else. Somebody has noted something. Sometimes you look in the chart. And their respiratory rate is different. The nurses have noted something. I had a patient similar to this 
who one the family members said, why is he putting his hand, you know, underneath the other arm to, and the family member used the term kind of splinting his breathing. And uh, I thought, oh my God, they picked it up before we did by actually looking at the patient. Well, this, this patient was endorsing pain. I mean, he came in for complaints of pain. So mm-hmm. I think there's no reason that he that he shouldn't have gotten appropriate imaging. Yeah. And and the course that I've seen with these people, so they they come in, a lot of them look fine. They're just like, yeah, it hurts. It hurts here. And then you, they get their CT scan. They have several rib fractures. Um where I was previously, they were admitted to the ICU if they, you know, had over three rib fractures because their their morbidity mortality was so high. And right. then they would, a number of them would just slowly decompensate because of their pain was difficult to control. And then they would have a pneumonia or some bleeding, you know, their lung injury, and then they would die. You know, so it was this kind of slow decompensation, which this guy apparently suffered at home. But, you know, that's the reason that it's so important to identify them early. It sounds like we should get rid of the plain X-ray machine. You know, it's 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 history now. You well, know, we don't we don't do X-rays of the neck anymore. You want to do uh, CTs of the chest. Uh, we want to do uh, maybe a CT of the navicular or the calcaneus. That that X-ray machine that's history. We don't need well, it anymore. It, it- it's not history, Rick, but I think what we need to do is, is ask a few more questions every time we order a study as to what really takes us from point A to point B. What's going to answer my question? And, and the problem is you and I grew up in that generation where everybody did a, 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 a chest X-ray for these things. You know what? It's just not the way to go anymore, and we got to deal with that. Although, you know, we did do a chest X-ray, and, and, and I admit 85 is, is different, but oftentimes when we would do a chest X-ray and it was negative, we were really looking for uh, the lungs and uh, and whether there's any pulmonary contusions or anything like like that. Uh, that was kind of obvious, but if it was okay, we and it, we felt that it might have been cracked, we, we would say, well, it's a, probably a little crack at the costochondral junction. We really can't see it on x-ray, but it's, you know, it's going to probably be going to be tender for a while. And we would just basically say, okay, if there's something there, it hasn't resulted in any kind of visceral uh, perforation or injury. And so, yeah, it might be just some cracks here and there, but nothing, nothing nasty. Right. There's no free air. There's no blood. So basically, we're going to let you go home and rest. And because that, Ra- yeah. Rachel, for decades, this has done been done with plain X-rays, and you know, I don't think that. I think that the outcome in this person was uh, very atypical, honestly. But but so, I, yeah. I, I guess you don't necessarily agree. So I have the same discussion with, you know, younger people with their their chest X-rays. I don't get a CT for everybody. So if you're non-elderly, I tell them, you know, the chest X-ray is not going to identify every rib fracture, but really we're looking for displaced rib fractures or underlying lung injury. That's it. And they get their X-ray. But now we know that older people with consecutive rib fractures do very poorly. And so I think we have the tools to identify them. 
we're seeing a lot more older people with these injuries and we have the tools to help them. And so I think we're obligated to do so. Gotcha. Yep. Well, you know, when you bring that up, it's like, well, CTs are much better than plain x-rays for pneumonia. Uh, so when you start looking at the sensitivity and specificity of x-rays, it's like, mm, they're probably going to identify the majority of pathology, but it's kind of like, well, if you're going to miss 10 or 20% or, or the like, is that something that you feel comfortable with, especially knowing that machine is down the road there? And when you look at what Medicare pays for CAT scans, it's honestly not all that much. Now, I acknowledge not, not everybody coming in is a Medicare patient, for sure. And if everybody coming in was a Medicare patient, the hospitals would go broke. But um, we have better technology now than, than we used to. And these CAT scans give less radiation than they used to. They're faster than they used to be. And um, they don't take that much time. Most of the time is rolling them over to the CAT scan machine. So I think that we ought to have a more, more comfortable threshold for ordering CTs when we know the plain x-rays are not all that good and in cases where it matters, like the patient that you're talking about, when somebody's older, that we change the, uh, change the dial and this person now qualifies for a CT. Um, do you do in those cases, do you do a plain x-ray first and, and, or just skip that? Uh, only if they're unstable, but if they're stable enough to go to CT, I just get the CT. Yeah. Because it's kind of like it, it was, I was kind of of the belief that you had in order to earn the, uh, the authority to order a CT, you had to have a X, plain X-ray. Like you couldn't just bypass that and go right to CT, even though, then you know that's a true on scaphoid and 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 uh, certainly probably in, in a case like this, and it was be seemed a little ballsy to skip the uh, traditional chest X-ray, but but then again, what do I know? All right, yeah. we, you have one more case for us. Yep, I've, yep, I've got one more. Okay, so uh, next case. And this one, it was a 37-year-old female. She basically got out of her car, tripped over her curb, face planted, just right on her face. She went into a nearby urgent care, and they basically took one look at her and said, you fractured your jaw. You got to go to the ED. We can't handle you here. So she went into the ED, and they did a mandibular x-ray. And they said, actually, it looks pretty good. And, you know, just head on out. So three weeks later, she still couldn't really move her jaw. And she went into, I think, an ENT group and they did a CT scan and they showed this really complex, awful mandibular fracture. And so she sued both the emergency physician and the radiologist at the ER. And ultimately it went through the lawsuit and the radiologist was found not to be at fault because they recognized an X-ray is just not sensitive. you know the x-ray wasn't misread. You just couldn't see it on there, but they found the emergency position to be at fault for relying on the x-ray. And they gave her, it was like $150,000 verdict. There's a, there's a problem here, Rachel. We've got to assume that the examination didn't cause this physician to go further on this. You know, the examination of the face is actually pretty good. 
and it kind of sits out there in front of you. You get to put your hand inside, move it up and down. Um, I, I've seen plenty of fractures missed simply because they didn't examine the patient. Oh, there you go. And, and you're like a freaking broken record. I know it. I know it. I'm from the old school. But most of those people, if you put your hand in their mouth and push down, um, they have pain where they where they've broken their mandible. And it's it's rare that they're they're painless with a broken mandible. And probably some bleeding and they have they have all kinds of things. And if we think that a the plain x-ray, you you realize uh, if you go into your to your uh, ortho, the the oral surgeon's office, uh, he's got he's got machines which are unbelievable <laughs> that yeah. that take pictures of this kind of stuff. And I I think we ought to insist on some of that for our patients as well. You know, are you saying that another case here of plain X-rays not doing the job? And another case where the CAT scan was the answer. Is that four for four that we're talking about here? <laughs> yeah. now, ding, now, ding, ding. What is, what is ding, that ding. telling us about? We got a machine that is a lot better than the old machine, and we don't do, do it only because we're concerned about the cost. That's the only reason we don't do these things. Uh, and I can tell you that I, I would be willing to bet, Rachel, you have a CT machine in your ER, right? Yep. Oh, and that's what it's for. It's for for imaging, and and so. You, I, I don't even think it's cost related, though. I mean, no. I I work in a place where we don't think about cost. It's not an issue. But there's there's this idea that we emergency physicians get by with like the least, you know, the least amount as possible, you know. And if we can do that, we're like the better, stronger physicians. The least amount of possible for crying out loud. You come into an emergency department now, and they have all of these protocols that result in 15, 55 uh, tests being done before the clinician even sees you. <laughs> but at the but at the same time, your colleagues are over there like, oh my god, they order CT on everybody. You know, you don't want to be that person, and well, so you have kind of these warring dynamics. And I think that comes into play whether we like it or not. And and we're trying to move the patients through, and there's a line that's three hours long for the CT scan, and it's 20 minutes long for the X-ray, and that's part of this too, is just patient flow. So the four cases, thank you, uh, Rachel. Uh, basically, they say get rid of your X-ray machine. That's my conclusion. It's not your conclusion. I understand. I think we just have to be thoughtful about it and acknowledge its limitations maybe a little more frequently than we tend to do these days. Well, the numbers that you give us uh, with regard to the sensitivity or give us the heebie-jeebies because I think most people would not uh, be uh, um, aware that the numbers are as bad as you uh, said they are. Yeah, so, and, and again, I don't want to be the broken record, but I had a great ENT doc who said, basically, let somebody who knows their business examine the head and neck area he'll pick up the fracture every time he says if the if the x-ray is negative you've gotten the wrong study or or the wrong time and he said he said do not believe 
that if if the patient isn't in pain when you push on things, it isn't broken. And I think he I think he was right. You know, there was another point. Uh, like uh, we've all seen kids who have fallen and and lacerated the, their chin because they landed right smack dab on their chin, and they basically have this crush injury that, that results yeah. in this kind of um, laceration that doesn't have nice smooth edge edges. And uh, we were in the past we we had talked about some of these little kitties wind up getting uh, fractures of their uh, mandibular condyles because that's the thinnest part of the mandible. Yep. And you can see that this force is coming right up, jamming those uh, those uh, condyles. And that one of the things you, you ought to think to do is when you're examining a kid who's got the chin laceration, that you feel over the mandible, the condyles, to see if there's any tenderness in uh, the kid there, because if there is a fracture and it's not recognized, the jaw will grow weird it potentially because one is affected and the other's not and you can see how these things really need to be in alignment so that your jaw points straight ahead and we need to train our residents that you do that by putting your fingers in their ears and having them open slowly and uh, you'll pick up you'll pick up subtle fractures there all the time just uh, just Put your fingers in, have them drop the jaw down. It'll be painful if they're broken, <laughs> I promise you. I can just see that. Listen, Doc, it pains in my jaws. What are you doing with my ears, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What no, kind no. of doctor are you? you no, know? no. It works. <laughs> I'm, tell I'm telling you, it works. All right. Let's move on to some other stuff that we have uh, that I've collected over the last month or so. Rachel, do you want to do right. this first one about the sure. opponent case? Yep. So this is similar to a case we talked about last month, actually. But and this one is from Medical Malpractice Insights, this December issue. We talked about a case of a 57-year-old man who came into the ED with chest pain that developed at home, radiated into the left arm. He vomited with it. So fairly concerning. He was brought into the hospital, uh, at which point he felt better, was seen by a triage nurse. There were several different kind of tracks for chest pain, triage options uh, that the nurse could have put him in as far as getting him set up for different tests. But she didn't put him in any of those. Instead, she just ordered an EKG and a troponin. And the EKG was read by the machine, was read as borderline uh, doctor must review stat. The physician was shown the EKG about an hour and a half afterwards. And his interpretation was no ischemic changes. The troponin resulted, it was just over the upper limit of normal. The upper limit of normal at this hospital was 0.08, and this gentleman's troponin was 0.09. The, the doctor saw the troponin with that EKG and discharged him less than an hour after seeing him. And the guy went home and died the next day of an MI. Yeah. 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 And so I, I think this case raises a few different issues. Uh, you know, first of all, it highlights the, the triage errors. You know, there these these tracks exist for a reason. Somebody shows up with chest pain. The idea is that they get, you know, appropriate orders placed at the outset. And usually that would be, um, you know, chest X-ray, EKG, serial troponins, the rest of the labs to interpret those. And that didn't happen in this case. 
the EKG was obtained and then the, the physician didn't see it until an hour and a half afterwards. And I think that kind of, that generally, or at least potentially can change how the physician interprets it. You know, when you, it's brought to you right away, I think you're more inclined to view it as abnormal where you see an hour and a half later when kind of the patient's ready to go, you maybe are inclined to interpret it a different way. And then, uh, the communication at discharge, uh, basically what was said is by the physician is this does not appear to be serious or heart related. And I like, uh, Rick's note there. He's uh, in I, the chart. <laughs> Who in their right mind would say this? Yes. Well, <laughs> I have to quote him. Yes. I, th I think Rick has to be complimented here because if, if you tell anybody that, you know, like, well, it can't be this or that. No, you're wrong. The other thing is, it's not a normal number. <laughs> and even if it's a little abnormal, then you maybe then I guess the next day you're just a little dead. Um, I, I, th I think it's hard when you've got a number that comes back not right then why did you get the number? And isn't it true, doctor, that we sometimes get another number or a third number? I, I think this is a tough, this is a tough case, Rachel, to, uh, to get away with. My sense is that this guy uh, basically wasn't taken seriously regarding what happened at right. home. Once he comes in and the uh, the ischemic episode is over, it's kind of like uh, unless you really have a good feeling about what had happened, uh, you may just kind of the nurses didn't take this person particularly seriously. The doctor didn't seem to take this person particularly seriously. I mean, uh, you know, I kind of get the sense that the American Heart Association says everybody's EKG should be within ten minutes of your arrival. But, you know, why would the nurse do an EKG in order to ponin? Um, and if once you do that, it's kind of like, what, what, what pathway are you going now? What do you, what do you think you're evaluating here? Ectopic pregnancy for crying out loud? I mean, it's so, so they kind of committed themselves to a cardiac workup, but they didn't act like we're doing a, a cardiac workup in terms of the time frames and the, um, the triage, the chest main tract that they, ought to have been put into, but, but, you know, one of my questions is once you order one troponin, are you almost obligated to order a second? And once you order one EKG, are you almost obligated to order a second in, in cases like, like this? That's my question. So I would answer those no and no. I know you would. <laughs> we don't want to. I, I, I don't think you're necessarily obligated, but when you've ordered one troponin, you are obligated to make a comment like, uh, you know, reviewing the situation. Oh, geez. You, you at least, Greg, you least you, have to say that you've Greg, seen it. Greg, you just yeah. locked up there. Um, oh, is that better? Okay. Well, I would just repeat the statement that you uh, you made. Well, the statement is, if you've got to deal with the one number, the one value, you better explain why you're not going on or why it's not reasonable. Because 
first of all, getting a second troponin is a pretty simple thing to do. The second thing is, do you, have you ever read any papers about sending people home with one troponin? I mean, it's it's not the the thing which is commonly done in most places, Rick. It's it's not the, the usual practice. We're gonna have uh, Rachel defend her position here. I think that I probably send at least half my patients home with a single troponin. But the reason for that is at least half of them are presenting a day or hours or a week after their concerning episode of chest pain. You know, it was like yesterday I was out with my friends and I had chest pain. Yesterday I was golfing and I had this episode of chest pain. And so, you know, and then their troponin is fine. You're telling me, though, that then the problem is, Who's ordering the troponin? What you're saying is if you'd seen the patient and not the nurse or somebody's starting thing, you probably would have just on the history sent the patient home. No, right? I think I think I would have gotten a single troponin to see if there was any elevation because if they'd had a cardiac event, I would expect their troponin to still be elevated that next day. But yes. so in measuring it, you know, <clears throat> six, 12, 24 hours later, and it's not elevated, I can say whatever you experienced, there's no evidence of, you know, cardiac damage. And then I can kind of risk assess them, you know, through for their risk of major adverse cardiac event and decide if they need admission or if they can follow up as an outpatient. And these patients that I think don't need a second troponin it usually are the ones that have a low risk of an adverse cardiac event and they can follow up as an outpatient. You know, they have few risk factors, they're healthy, it was not a concerning story, their EKG is normal, and they can follow up with cardiology as an outpatient or their primary because their heart score is low. Well, okay, so you're you're qualifying it by saying this is these are patients that uh, are not coming in with something that transpired an hour ago and right. uh, now they're in there because they're scared and uh, like in the previous case we talked about, the person vomited at home, they were diaphoretic. Right. And and so that would be a, a different situation and that does make sense. Right, those yeah. are the patients I'm talking about. Um, any other issues on this, on this case? You know, I, uh, I feel a little sensitive about uh, it because we had a, somebody complain that we were reviewing medical malpractice insights and uh, cases and that they already got that. So why would they want to hear more about it? And I think that, you know, in Chuck, uh, who, uh, Chuck Pilcher, yeah. who puts these together, I mean, we're, we're buddies. And I think that the idea here is now we have three, three more doctors commenting on cases. And, per, and I think that we may bring a different point of view. So uh, please forgive us for reviewing Chuck's cases, although I think that there is, there is, there is value here. Um, next case is actually from uh, Medical Malpractice Insights as well. It's a seven-year-old who was uh, seen in the ER for an asthma attack, and she was uh, dis discharged, quote-unquote, stabilized. She retired, uh, we went home and uh, fell asleep for about six hours without incident. And then on awakening, she had a second episode of severe asthma. Her parents uh, took her in the car to get a prescription for the albuterol give, uh, fill that she was given in the emergency department. And she arrests en route and is taken to the ED where she dies 
three days later after her admission. So, you know, that doesn't certainly look good, that's for sure. And so uh, there are a couple of questions here. Uh, Was the patient given steroids in the emergency department? Uh, My own personal view is it would be the rare case who would not get steroids in the emergency department. Now, Rare. uh, Rare. Uh, do you want to disagree, uh, Rachel? Because that's usually your job to disagree. <laughs> so far, uh, no. we Okay, so you want to disagree with that one. Okay. How about number two? Was the patient given uh, an assessment of their ability to use an, uh, an, an inhaler? Because I kind of personally think that that is... Um, a really important kind of thing to do in kids who uh, who have asthma. What's their technique like? Any thoughts? Well, that was actually a service which respiratory therapy provided in our department is they would come come down and teach the mothers and the child or whoever they were to to properly use the instruments. And I think that was a very valuable service because we we kind of pretend like all human beings know how to utilize these things. They don't. And it's uh, it was good to have that done. But but I'll tell you the number of kids that I saw o- over my many, many years of doing this who came back in, who failed, it's real. And d- do I feel badly for this emergency doctor? Absolutely. Because, you know, a little bit of this always hung in the back of your mind when you sent somebody home. And the truth is, there are kids I didn't let go home too quickly because I didn't think the parents were as attuned to what was going on as I thought. Now, you know, that's probably awful to say, but the, but if I didn't feel comfortable with it, uh, I'd watch them a few more hours in the department until they were till they were really clear. Well, this kid was quote unquote stabilized. I don't know exactly what that matter means, but uh, that was in the chart. Yeah, Rachel, and every kid about- is gonna every kid with as an asthma attack pretty much is gonna go home. You got to let them go sometime. So what's your, what's your point that says, yeah, they're okay. Well, there are these issues about criteria for letting people go. And in the past, we we were encouraged to use uh, peak flows and that those kinds of things. But I never think that I I didn't think that that ever really caught on uh, and that it was in fact done that, Basically, physicians would use their their judgment about whether how how a patient was doing because you know most of these kids are pretty amped up on these adrenergics we we give them, so their pulse is generally going to be elevated, and um, they're not going to be totally clear. But we always hope well that steroids are kicking in a couple of hours, and that uh little wheezing is this going to get get better over over time and certainly not worse i think experienced parents um I, if i had a mom who said he's not right yet or she's not right yet i listened i paid attention to that cuz they watch these kids at home all the time 
And if they didn't feel comfortable, I didn't feel comfortable. I was perfectly happy to let them sit for a few more hours until uh, till the steroid kicked in. I think this is one of those diseases, illnesses, where we probably have to spend a little bit of extra time and effort making sure that the kids and parents have access to the medications and what we're alluding to is kind of making sure they have the spacer and the inhaler. And this case highlights that. I mean, they were going to pick up the inhaler and it makes me wonder why don't we just give them inhaler in the ED? I mean, we do that, right? We have the respiratory therapist come and give them a puff of the inhaler so that they can then give them that inhaler to go home with. And, you know, I think that mechanism probably exists in most EDs. Uh, And, you know, or if, if you can't do that for whatever reason, really impressing upon them the importance of stopping on the way home so that they have this in hand. And if that discussion wasn't had, then this is partly on the physician. You know, I think with asthma in particular, it can affect anybody, but we know that it tends to affect um, folks with, you know, that are less financially well off in medically underserved areas. And so I think these discussions and these considerations are, uh, are, are more important. So making sure you know, you're communicating really well with the parents, making sure that access to medications and cost of medications are not an issue. We have to be thinking of more in these cases than in, you know, just a random dude with diverticulitis. Those uh, inhalers are over over $50 now. And um, so they're not something that is, uh, you know, in the petty cash uh, neighborhood. So that's for sure true. And I, I always did the business where they got an inhaler in the emergency department. So we, number one, we could s- s- watch their technique, give them the spacer if they, if they, if they needed one. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, I always kind of thought I was breaking the rules when I did that, because I would just ask the nurses for an inhaler and we would give it to the kid and out the kid went. Um, however, you know, the pharmacist on the other hand would say, you know, that's, you've broken every rule because it has to be labeled and, uh, and expiration date and all of this other stuff that, that is not properly done when we do that. But I couldn't care less to tell you the truth that it didn't have the proper label on it. There was much more value in seeing how the kid, uh, used the, um, inhaler and yeah, you, you give it to them and you save them 50 bucks. And, uh, there's always this issue of, I, I didn't have the money to get it, or I, I didn't have the time to get it. Those kinds of things. I don't know that would have made a big difference here. Maybe it would have in this case. Um, I, w- I would have hoped that her, her steroids would have kicked in and uh, that, that this episode, it, it just sounds like it was kind of like very, you know, to be sleeping, seems to be okay. And then to wake up and and be in such a distressful state, you know, I don't know. Anyway, this case summary, this, uh, what did I call it? Summary judgment never, never even got to a, a decent trial because the expert that was brought on, on the plaintiff side was so bad that, uh, they didn't even get the trial on this according to, um, the read from, um, Chuck P- Pilcher. Yeah. And they, uh, we're going to do one more case uh, from Chuck, and then we'll leave his stuff alone. And <laughs> I, I was I, just going to say on this case, I think it highlights kind of the growing need for us to be advocates for our patients, not just because ethically it's the right thing to do, but because legally 
you know, we are still on the hook to some extent if the patients end up not following our advice, not getting that medication, you know, not picking up the prescription like we see here. I mean, maybe this particular case, the the defendant didn't end up having to pay anything out, but he still got dragged through a case. And you can imagine a bunch of other scenarios. You know, you prescribe an antibiotic that the the patient doesn't fill because it's expensive. And you can you can sit back and say it's not my fault. But you know, to some extent it is. If you mm-hmm. if you had a choice right. of a cheaper antibiotic and you didn't do it because you just didn't care enough to think about it, that is on you. And you know, I think more and more we need to be kind of thinking through all of those things. And this case touches on that to some extent. I think we'll see that more and more going forward. No, I I agree. I, I think that you uh you bear responsibility if you give a person discharge instructions or medications that they can't possibly fill, you know, it makes you look like a jerk in the process. But yeah, I think that you're culpable. Uh, This next case involves strangulation. And I must admit, I personally have, uh, I don't really know anything about this. And so when I read this case, I thought, man, there's a lot of good stuff uh, to learn here from these two cases on strangulation. Rachel, you want to take us through the uh, through some of them? Sure. Um, I've seen several cases similar to this, and I remember being really surprised about kind of how aggressive we were at evaluating these. But it, you know, kind of looking at this case, it, it highlighted that we were probably doing the right thing. So two cases involving strangulation, both of them kind of, well, one of them a bizarre incident. And this one, a person was intoxicated in some form, climbing a tree, uh, fell and somehow was strangled by the safety rope that he was using to climb. (laughs) The quote unquote safety rope. Rachel, as soon as you started to tell the story and it's, and you said, uh, climbing a tree using a rope and, uh, drinking or uh, intoxicated or something like that. Well, what could go wrong? In yeah. this in this story, oh my God! <laughs> so that was the case of an accidental strangling. Yep, and, and then, then another um, was uh, an assault in which the patient was beaten and strangled. And I think probably maybe the most common scenario is suicide by strangulation, where yeah. a patient is found, you know, partially strangled. So yeah, I, uh, I was always uh, fascinated. Uh, how somebody would choose that way of dying. I mean, it's like, I think it's probably one of the worst ways to go. And it was like, what would possess you to do that? I mean, if you're desperate and that's the only way, well, okay, so that's what people do in prisons. That was Jeffrey Epstein. Um, but And there was another person who did that uh, in prison as well. But I think it's kind of a, Bad way to bad way to go. Yeah. So I think medically there are a lot of different injuries that strangulation can cause. You can injure the soft tissues, bones, cartilage of the neck. Uh, you can injure the vessels, carotid vertebral arteries specifically, and then as a result of that, you can ha- develop severe anoxic injuries of the brain itself. And all of those things you need to be thinking about when you see these patients. And so there are, you know, most institutions, especially trauma centers, will have kind of protocols for how you evaluate these patients. And if, if you don't work at one of those, there are a number of them available 
we pulled up one from the Family Justice Center, which was developed um, as part of a grant, I think, from the Department of Justice that looked at kind of how do you evaluate these patients if they happen to show up in your emergency department. And and basically what they want you to do is be looking for if you see any evidence of trauma, like if that strangulation device was around their neck enough to cause any symptoms or any evidence of trauma, then they need to be getting kind of full bore imaging. And what they recommend is um, CT angiography as a gold standard. Uh, and just to kind of highlight what symptoms would be that you're looking for, what evidence of trauma would be, uh, I'll be explicit about those. So loss of consciousness obviously would have you concerned for some anoxic brain injury. Any visual changes, same thing, you're worried about some brain injury. You know, if they were squeezing, something was squeezing hard enough to cut off blood flow. So that could be anything like reports of tunnel vision, flashing lights, spots in the vision. If you have any petechial hemorrhages, you got to get down close and look. Anything, especially around the eyes, around the lips, really anywhere on the face, you might see these. That suggests there was enough pressure caused that you need to be um, going further to look at the neck with a CTA. If you see anything around the neck itself, ligature marks, contusions, that suggests whatever was around that neck was tight enough to cause underlying issues. You need to go further and image it. Uh, any swelling of the neck, even if the skin itself looks okay, if you push on the neck and it hurts, that's enough. Um, if the patient had any, uh, any neurologic symptoms at all, so we talked about some of those, but if they had um, seizure-like activity, any confusion, any amnesia to the event, um, any weird movements, movement disorders, they had any focal weakness. Again, all of those things would suggest some level of anoxic injury. Um, difficulty speaking would suggest uh, some type of laryngeal injury, bleeding, soft tissue swelling around the nerve or the larynx itself. Um, difficulty breathing, again, would suggest soft tissue injury that would need to be evaluated. And then you can kind of feel for crepitus or soft tissue emphysema. And then finally, something we don't think about a lot would be bowel or bladder incontinence. Any of those things, some of which are super mild, you know, hey, you're just strangled. If I push on your neck, does it hurt? If they say yes, or if you see even like a mark, that person should be getting a CT angiography of their neck. If for some reason you don't have that, um, access to CT angiography, CT neck with contrast would be kind of the next best study followed by MRA, MRI, um, of the head and neck. And, and then this sheet goes on to say carotid ultrasound is really not recommended because it's super insensitive for the things that you're looking for and is really not a good replacement study. And then if for some reason you're working in a center where you can't get these and you need to transfer that patient out, it probably makes sense to administer them some aspirin, um, just to prevent worsening injuries, prevent clots, if they're worried about vascular injury, um, while you're transferring them. And really only if you can say no to absolutely everything on that list, do they not need to be imaged. And so really, really low threshold for imaging in these patients. Do we have any idea how many of these take place a year in the country? What, what would the average emergency physician see? Would you see two of these a year or three? I have no idea. Maybe it depends on where you where you live to a certain extent. Uh, but I would think a fair number of these may be, may be even 
a domestic uh, altercation uh, may be a, a cause of uh, some of these. But in any case, it's still, I think, relatively uncommon unless you're really in a pretty big place where you're seeing a lot of a lot of cases. Rachel, your uh, Mayo has a protocol for uh, this, or is this something? Yeah, uh, Mayo Rochester had a protocol as a trauma center that uh, I don't have in front of me, but was awfully similar to this. Basically, really low threshold for CTA for any any strangulation injuries. Yeah, we're going to have the uh, link up for this Family Justice Center protocol. If you don't have a protocol for strangulation, I would really uh, suggest that you get it. I thought it was a really good protocol. Uh, brought up to me a lot of things that uh, I really wasn't aware of and w- would not necessarily have considered. So uh, check it out. I just looked at, uh, I looked up a study showing that 10% of women uh I don't know if this is world or nationwide, but 10% of women report having been strangled by a partner, which is, mm. uh, and not in a good way. <laughs> I, I guess I'm behind on my strangulation efforts. Yes, I, you know, I guess I yeah. Uh, Rachel, uh, have you been strangled recently? No, okay. So we are, we're screwing up this statistics here. The next topic here is um, interesting. It's entitled Apology Laws for Malpractice, Deader Than a Dodo. You know, we've talked about apology laws a lot over the over the past years, but I must always say I'm not sure how you do a partial apology, like uh, which is basically what you were supposed to do, a partial apology um, by way of um, – legalities here, 39 states now have some sort of apology laws that um, are, I guess, <laughs> intended to uh, uh, absolve you of any culpability and that they're not admissible to court if you uh, follow the rules and, and apologize according to the rules. But, you know, I'm sure this varies state to state. You know, there is certainly the case where States say you can say I'm sorry, but you're not allowed to say it's my fault. And you know it's so easy to go. That's the next logical thing to say after you're sorry is I'm sorry, it's my fault. Um, but in any case, you better be aware of, of that. There's this issue of of a group called Sorry Works, this nonprofit organization. Their goal is to uh, advance the disclosure and uh, and apology. To in the healthcare settings, and they make the distinction that apologies and apology laws are different from these hospital communication and disclosure programs, which we've also also talked a lot about in the past, where Greg's friend uh, did this University of Michigan protocol uh, thing for apology and compensation and communication and they were one of the first to do it, and it spread out around the country uh, more and more. And um, one of the issues then was, well, we've got fewer suits, but uh, and we're paying out less money. But is this just a transient phenomenon? And apparently, it was not. Apparently, the work that he did was quite. What was his name? <clears throat> yes, uh, <laughs> I'll come up with it in a okay. second, but. But but you you make an interesting point here, Rick. 
um, saying what he pointed out was saying I'm sorry is not the same as saying I'm guilty. Uh, A lot of us are sorry that something bad happened. But uh, that's not saying I'm guilty of malpractice necessarily. And what he said is as soon as possible, get your team together or your group together and talk to the patient about what honestly happened um, and be willing to answer those tough questions when they come up about, you know, what we could have done otherwise, this, that, and other thing. And uh, you're right. He uh, he was one of those people who basically said, if you said there were some difficulties and are honest about it, you have less trouble than if you try and hide what went on. So you Richard know, Booth, Richard oh, Boothman. Yes, Richard. exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. That's that's who. Uh, he's written a lot about it, and uh, Richard kind of like yeah, yeah. He's your neighbor. Yeah. He's my neighbor. Right. <laughs> he was, yes. Uh, they point out that these hospital communication and disclosure programs, which w- he was the uh, pioneer on, yeah. they emphasize full disclosure. Uh, and most hospitals now, I think, are doing full disclosure. Uh, it is kind of like it, it's been endorsed by the AMA and American Hospital Association is basically going to say we, we endorse full disclosure programs. So there's full disclosure where you uh, find out and tell the person and or family exactly what ha- happened. And then there's this um, you investigate why it happened there. You, you develop system changes to avoid a recurrence of it happening. Uh, you did a rapid apology to the patient or family, and then there's financial compensation when it's viewed as reasonable. Uh, all of that is handled internally uh, without any kind of, uh, you know, uh, court kind of action. And I think it's probably, it's it's. I think it's what you would want if your family member was injured. You would like that to happen, all of those things. And if you don't do all of those things and just say, I'm sorry, that's considered to be an incomplete apology because a, a complete apology would basically expect those other things to follow on. Uh, they have a study here from the Stanford Law Review that said apologies laws raise the probability of being sued and increase the average payment to resolve claims according to a study that they did. There's also quotes in this article basically saying that in those states where they've initiated apology laws, there's been no uh, noticeable uh, decrease in lawsuits, uh, although it's uh, hard to be, uh, you know, link the two of them together as yes. causation for sure. I have a bunch of thoughts on this. <laughs> <laughs> Good. That's great. Well, you got a lot of nerve having thoughts. Okay. So the Michigan thing, I just want to clarify because it sounds really good how it's presented. But if you look at it, um, what it really was is is like a little bit less noble than it sounds on paper. You know, they kind of made it sound like we're going to kind of proactively just own up to everything and and then pay people and 
you know, not not have them take us to court and we're going to address everything. But they still waited for people to complain. So patients would bring a complaint and they would say, oh, let us look into it. And then if they looked into it and did their own internal review and they they agreed that they were at fault, then they would offer the person that was complaining basically a settlement like, hey, let's not take this to court. We'll give you some compensation. Here's our plan for making it better. We're so sorry. Like, what do you think? You know, is this good enough to not sue us? Which is, you know, I think great. And uh, for a lot of people that would keep them out of court. And that's what they wanted is not have to go through all the court proceedings to have something positive come out of it and feel like they're taken seriously. But it still wasn't like, you know, they were going around saying, oops, we really screwed up on that one. We're going to we're going to comp that surgery for you. It was still like a complaint based system. So, you know, we well, you know. So I, the, ext- the the extension of that is that you would you would acknowledge to a patient when an error was made, even when it would not affect them in any way. Like you were given right. um, a, a extra large dose of Tylenol. We're sorry that it happened. It was our mistake, and here's how we're going to correct it. Except it had absolutely no effect on the patient. So that errors that occurred that had no consequences were also being reported to the patients, which, which is um, maybe a little bit over the top. But that's, but that's not what that Michigan system was. No, right. but I mean, exactly. I think that was the, the extension of that in terms of full disclosures. Some of the full disclosures basically were disclosures where there was no consequences to the patient, but an error, an error did occur. One thing that Boothman did was that he had people who were specially trained uh, how to talk to the patients about what's going on. And he said, you don't let the average uh, thoracic surgeon walk in and apologize. He says, it's not what they're good at. <laughs> and 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 so you have somebody who kind of understands how to take patients through it, do these various things. And, um, I, I think if you're going to have a system like that, um, you better do it right or not at all, because right. you can see where it can get you in more trouble. Right. I just wanted to point out, it's still a very sterile system. This is not like, you know, the Michigan providers are over there, like running into the room being like, wow, we really screwed up in there. We're so sorry. We're going to pay you back. It's not how right. it's happening. No, you know, it was very sterile. It was almost like the courtroom outside the courtroom. But they did it in a way that it it flowed better. The patients felt like they were, you know, navigating better. They got something out of it other than just money. You know, they got better communication. They got maybe system improvements. And I think overall it was positive, but it's also not, I think, what providers would envision when they think of what they want, you know, as far as being able to communicate with patients. Right. But anyway, on to the Stanford Law Review thing. So I'm not necessarily like an advocate of apology laws or... You know, uh, I, I I don't really have strong feelings about them, but I, I pulled up the Stanford Law Review, like the actual like 50 page law review or whatever it was and read it. And I'm unconvinced that it is the definitive proof that apology laws don't work. So, you know, what they did is they had they looked at an insurance database so they had one insurer that insured 90% of physicians in a, a single specialty. They don't tell us what specialty it is. They say for privacy reasons, they can't tell us what specialty. But they had 90% of physicians in that specialty nationwide. 
And then they tell us that in that specialty, 75% of physicians are licensed to practice surgically and 25% are not. And so then they looked over time, you know, because 39 of these states have enacted apology laws and 11 haven't, they looked at how were the malpractice rates different in those states that enacted apology laws compared to the 11 that didn't. And they basically found no difference when they, when they, um, well, actually when they looked at all of them, they found that the apology laws decreased lawsuits. Okay. They don't highlight that in the results, but they found that it decreased, but then they said, well, we kind of anticipated that would be the case for surgeons. So they, they took out the surgeons from their analysis. And then they focused only on the 25% of physicians in whatever specialty this was that were not licensed to do surgical procedures. And they said, when we look at those physicians, the ones in the states with apology laws were sued more than we would have expected. And that's what their whole conclusion is based on. And I just find that really like a little bit hard to wrap my head around. And the rates of lawsuits were something like 2% among those. So now you're looking at eight years of data, 50 states, 25% of the physicians, so 25% of 90% in eight years in 50 states, and 2% of those are getting sued, and they're seeing a 1% difference in lawsuits in those in states with apology laws. (laughs) They're like really small numbers. And I just think the conclusions are like probably questionable at best. So I still think we probably just don't really have good data about how apology laws affect propensity to sue. And like, furthermore, the states that are enacting apology laws are the ones where lawsuits were kind of, you know, they're, they're going to be the ones where the states were having more issues with lawsuits anyway. So we would expect those states to, for lawsuits to have increased at a faster number than their neighboring states that didn't enact these laws in the first place. So I don't think comparing those states to their neighbors is really like fair anyway. So well, this is another statement out of the uh, the article that you may wish to then destroy. Uh, it said, <laughs> researchers also found no evidence that apology laws reduce the practice of defensive medicine. Well, I can certainly understand that. Nothing, nothing yeah. decreases the practice of defensive medicine. This is this is bulletproof. But they said a 2021 study of medical malpractice insurance premiums show that apology laws increased premiums charged to general surgeons, internists, and OBGYNs between 10 and 16%. You know, uh, the causality here is also really, really very, you know. Yeah, it's crazy to say they cause that. It's crazy to say that's causing it. Again, like the states that have apology laws are going to be the states that have issues with malpractice. You know, the ones where malpractice is rising, the states recognize it as a problem. Those are the states that are enacting apology laws, which are essentially a form of tort reform. And so, of course, those are also going to be the states where insurance premiums are rising. So the idea that these tort reforms are causing insurance premiums to rise is like, I think it gives you some insight into the rest of the conclusion. So basically, we we have no (laughs) idea what apology laws are doing uh, but I still like, see, one of the problems with emergency medicine is when an error occurs, the error is so blatantly apparent usually that you, that the apology is due right then and there. While right. in the hospital, you know, if a surgical case 
you know, develops a problem, you know, the following day or something like that, then there's time to kind of, to, you know, mobilize and, and think through this, but, uh, there's no time to do this in in the ER when some thing that occurs that is pretty obvious to the patient, the family, everybody uh, understands that a mistake was made or or the like. I mean, the the proponents of apology laws suggest that by demonstrating some sympathy or empathy for the patient, they are then going to be less likely to sue you because they appreciate that you know, act of kindness. And then the the people who suggest that these are actually counterproductive worry that by saying, you know, I'm sorry, I feel really badly about this, that that act is going to spur the patient to sue you because you've just acknowledged that you did something wrong. Right. And I think, yes, you're right. We don't have the data to suggest which is which, but you're also right. Generally, the patients know that you did something wrong already. And their humanity might appreciate you acknowledging it. They also talk about these generation, second generation apology laws. I don't know exactly what they protect, but they said generically Massachusetts, Iowa, Oregon, and Colorado have these that have broader protections, but must be used in conjunction with the hospital disclosure program, disclosure and compensation program. So that kind of makes a lot more sense that, um, the, the hospital will get involved in, in this as well, and they will basically be linked together. Apologies with <clears throat> hospital uh, communication and compensation kind of thing. Yeah. Anyway, do we know what to do at the end of this? I think one take-home point is to know if you are in a state that has a partial or full apology law. And I would just presume you're in a state that has a partial apology law, meaning you can say, you know, expressions of apology or sympathy, but expressions of fault aren't necessarily protected. So you can say, you know, I'm sorry, uh, you know, I apologize. That For cannot what? be used yeah. against you in court. But if you say it's our fault, that phrase could be. So you just recognize kind of the limitations of apology laws. So you're not, it's not there to allow you to cast blame, take blame. It's there to allow you to express sympathy. Right. All right. Next matter. This is um, a story that was published actually in Yahoo, February 17th, 2022. So it's quite recent. The incident involved a uh, hospital in Florida, uh, in Leesburg, um, University of Florida affiliated hospital uh, an emergency physician was arrested and charged with three counts of battery after allegedly striking a patient numerous times. Uh, remember now, battery is the intentional infliction of a harmful or offensive contact. It's always like assault and battery. I, I would un- anticipate assault's worse than battery, but it's the other way around. Uh, the, the emergency physician was thinking that a person was faking uh, their, uh, I guess, decreased level of consciousness. So he apparently struck her in the face repeatedly and also used her hand to strike her herself in the face. In the process, her IV got pulled out. There was blood all over the place. And um, her face was reportedly swollen, reddened, and bruised. It was also noted that 
he was laughing and mocking the patient. The nurses ultimately stopped the, this from occurring. It's unclear who called the police, but this fellow got her arrested. Um, I think one of the, uh, the points here is that your behavior is, uh, scrutinized by everybody in the department and everybody in the department may not your be your, you know, your dear bosom buddy. And so if you cross the line and this fella sounds like he really crossed the line, uh, you cannot depend on these folks covering for you when you, when you did something pretty blatantly. And I, you know, we've all seen people who we thought were, you know, faking it. And we all did things to kind of try to get them to show that they weren't faking it. And, um, you know, I, I know people have been pinched and rubbed and this and that kind of thing to, um, when they, when you thought that they were faking it and this fellow went a, a little too far, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. I was reading a, another version of this case and it says that, you know, at some point this patient started resisting this guy, you know, maybe right. she was, she was faking it and woke up and started resisting him. And so he kept on going harder and like punching her in the face. And then he eventually got, um, you know, tackled by his, by the people working there. Uh, I mean, obviously this guy just kind of, it sounds like just kind of lost it. And I mean, you could branch into a deeper conversation about mental health of healthcare providers, I think, because <laughs> presumably this was not, you know, a terrible person, but I think lots of us are going through terrible times and, that's there probably are, more to do with what happened here. There are so many techniques of disclosing the patient who is, um, um, let's say, feigning certain illnesses. You don't have to result to violence. And I, I think that this is just bizarre that you're sitting there punching a patient. I, I mean, I've done this for a long time. And unless they were punching me, I don't, I don't see where punching patients, you really gain much. And I don't think it's a correct examination technique. Uh, you can get what you want in lots of other ways. Yeah, you were very uh, successful in uh, surreptitiously uh, causing some stimulation to the patient, which not which would not leave my, any marks or uh, evidence. Yes, exactly. <laughs> have have other. Is that techniques. what you were saying? Yes, exactly. And uh, I think here here's the worst thing: if you get into it with the patient, you have to de-escalate whatever this is, and you eventually either have to discharge them home or admit them or whatever you're going to do. I, I think in general, um, confrontations like these are to be avoided. It's just, it's just not good. By the way, it doesn't send out to someone like Rachel, uh, who's teaching younger doctors, it doesn't send out any good messages. It doesn't. You know, I think that this doctor basically the fact that there was laughing and, and mocking the patient reflects somebody who's, who's become really very, very cynical. Yes. And, uh, you know, you kind of view that as you, you can kind of get angry at their behavior, but you can also start to see 
exactly what Rachel said, that um, things are not going well and um, people are being uh, pushed and um, there's an element of anger underneath a lot of this. And it's kind of like this fellow just kind of lost it. But in the process, what are the, what is the likelihood that this fellow is going to get hired again by anybody after being or this being known in their 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 medical you know um, when they apply for medical staff privileges at some other hospital or some other group uh, they want to hire this doctor and find out about this I mean it's just um, this fellow has done himself or herself a, a substantial amount of harm. You remember seeing the video of the doctor uh, who was um, doing the same thing, but there, a video was made of it. Uh, it was, it yes. was just, it was just, yes. it was just horrible. That uh, and another doctor was just doing pretty, pretty much the same thing, although it was more verbal than not, and really, um, very, very, very sarcastically treating this patient. And it was a, an example of a doctor who was just really became super cynical and just lost it and never realized that they were being photographed uh, when this was occurring. So sad, sad story, both uh, for the, the clinicians and the patients and, and the nurses and who have to be exposed to this and, and who become cynical enough that they'll behave like this because we didn't start out this way. No, no. Rachel. Yeah. And, any any thoughts on battery of the patients? I guess they don't allow that where you are. <laughs> no. I, you know, I can't imagine this guy was like this his whole career. I really think that it just, it reflects kind of what our healthcare providers have been pushed to recently. And I, I feel really bad for him because I think he tanked his career in, you know, a really awful decision-making. I feel mm -hmm. bad for the patient too, obviously, but, uh, I, I think it just speaks to a, a larger issue, which is kind of, a incredible burnout in our specialty and not really having a good way to deal with that. And, you know, we're poor behavior as a result of it. So there was a Yahoo study that I read a couple of days ago that said, uh, 23% of healthcare workers are planning on doing something else. I think that, you know, obviously that's uh, something that reflects a terrible degree of, of, of burnout for sure. A recent study showed that 60% of emergency physicians are uh, claiming to be burned out. It was the highest percentage of any specialty. Um, the last time the survey was done a year ago, emergency physicians were fourth, but now we are number one at 60%. Really, really sad. I don't know if we have time for another one, but it might segue into the, you had mentioned being recorded. It might segue into the, the one on recording doctor visits. Oh, you want to do that one? Let's do it. All right. It's yours. Where, where, where is that one? It was just one. We down. have enough time oh, here. Yeah, yeah, Rick. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we don't do CDs anymore. So there, we're not kind of boxed in by the, uh, the time, uh, requirement we are probably into this about 90 minutes when probably people are sick of this by now um, okay. so let, let's stop here and let's pick it up again 
uh, next month. We're, we'll do uh, more on recording of doctor visits. We're going to do things about uh, what you ought not do if the medical board's uh, talking to you. And also, we have an article on a doctor who was uh, accused of being under the influence of alcohol, who uh, basically won a substantial suit against the hospital. And I can envision um, the same thing happening in other hospitals as well. So I think it's a good case to talk about. Those are coming Great. attractions for uh, next month. Uh, Rachel, Gregory, thanks so much for your uh, participation today. Any we last got wine. Thought? We got wine of the month. Oh, you got a wine? We got a wine. Are we going to stop and, whining? Uh, I, I would just like to uh, tell you that uh, Chateau Brandu, which we have talked about a few years back, um, I have opened up my last case of the 1999 Chateau Brandu. And... Uh, this is the it, this is a Cote de Castillon. It's a wonderful wine, and um, you can you can uh, head to your uh, uh, wine distributor, and if they have something in this era, I would get it. Now, it's not going to be cheap, but um, you know some of those things that have been sitting in my uh, in my cellar. Growing have done a uh, have done a great job, and the uh, the Chateau Brandu um, is is worth the money. I'll I'll remember that the next time I get a, a six pack. Uh, <laughs> yes, at, I, at the uh, Albertsons. Yes, I of my I Miller Light. I understand, Rick. I understand. Rachel, any final thoughts? No final thoughts. No. Okay, we're out of here. Talk with you next month. Bye for now. Bye.